What does it mean to be a hero? That's a bloody good question. G'day, I'm Bernie Shakeshaft. I'm the 2020 Australian Local Hero of the Year. But it's that word, hero. Oh boy, they're big boots to fill. And today, we're talking with another everyday hero to find out just what it takes. Everyday heroes stamp their boots on the ground. If you live in the bush, there's a fair chance you'll know the importance of the word harvest. That's if you're lucky enough to get to the reaping stage just to begin with. In recent years, the drought and other climate challenges have knocked a lot of good farmers and food growers. My guest today knows all about harvests, but not the rural type we're familiar with. Hers take place in some of Australia's biggest cities. Ronnie Kahn is the founder of the incredibly successful Oz Harvest, a charity that rescues discarded food and redistributes it to the vulnerable. It's a cracker, and so is Ronnie. She's pushed for time, so let's get right into it. Ronnie, you strike me as uh, someone with such passion that whatever you do, you're going to make a difference. What made you decide to use this passion to start Oz Harvest? Well, first of all, thank you so much. Thank you for interviewing me, and thank you for having time with me. You know, I think that... One reaches a point in one's life, or I can only talk for myself, that Mm. it became compelling to do something that added value and that was more meaningful. Everything I've done, I generally try and do to the very best that I can. But once I discovered food rescue and saw the beauty and the simplicity of sharing food, just became something that obviously today I would call my sacred duty, my, my calling, but I certainly didn't know it then when I started. Ah, the simple things in life. How, how do you get to be so wise? Because I think that breaks it down, you know, and a lot of people meander through life never really knowing just what it was they were put here for. Where, where did that come from? How, who helped you shape Look, there's no doubt that I had some extraordinary role models. You know, Mm. my parents were two beautiful souls who landed up in extraordinary circumstances. My dad had an accident when I was six that put him in hospital for the next couple of years. Mm. They didn't think he'd survive, but he did. And he came out physically quite challenged, but it was never a challenge for him. We, we didn't realise he was disabled because he never considered himself disabled. And my mum, who had three kids and then had to really manage the household and, and mm. make a living for her family, never did it without a smile. And it wasn't a smile that covered up innate sadness or pain mm-hmm. or anger. She just took her life and her lot and made the best of it. So I had some awesome modelling there. Ronnie, was that something you recognised as you were a child growing up, looking at mum going, or does that kind of stuff come later on? It comes later on. I certainly didn't know. My mum died very young. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was also only only yeah, in the later years that you realise 
the things that inform your childhood. And so one of the things I'm really conscious of sharing whenever I talk or whenever I um, do these kinds of gigs is mm. to, to remind everybody that we are role models to our children, you know. When we, when we feel good, they know it. When we feel bad, they know it. So that mm. really how important it is to be as open and honest. With all this wisdom uh, that you have now, stuff you've worked out as you've gone through your own life journey, say you could have one more conversation with your mum and dad, what would you say? I'd say thank you. I'd say thank you for devoting your life to positivity, to gratitude, to just being the best you guys could be in difficult circumstances, but to make our lives the best. I have two sisters, so to make our lives the best. And I'd, I'd acknowledge the struggles they went through, which, of course, as a child, I was a spoiled mm. little girl. What did I know? <laughs> I just wanted everything and wanted it then and now, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you're a unique child in that department. <laughs> no. Ronnie, tell me, um, you were born in South Africa? I was born in South Africa, left South Africa when I finished school, went to live in Israel for many years and then landed in the promised land. <laughs> the promised land. Australia? Sure thing. If you've come from South Africa and you've come from Israel, which is supposed yeah. to be the promised land yeah. with all its challenges and you land here and you are white and you find a way to make a living, it's pretty damn good. What was it about Australia? Did you watch a hoax ad and go, oh, I've just got to get over there and chuck one of them shrimps on the barbie? Or how'd that work out? No, luckily I never saw those ads. I might never have come. (laughs) (laughs) No, fortunately another member of my family came here and when it came time to leave Israel, the choice was America or Australia. I never wanted to bring up kids in America. And so we came here and what a wonderful choice. It has yeah. been. So what was that like? Uh, you landed in Australia. What were you doing? Did you come? Was there a job or you just came with family? I came to Australia, no work, no money, but just a determination and a will to make a go of it. And so did whatever I could. This is um, Oz Harvest is tackling a, an enormously complex problem. Uh, do you really believe you can win? Sure, because if I didn't, I wouldn't wake up every day positive and hopeful. And I guess that is depends on your definition of winning. (laughs) So for me, winning today is different to what winning was when I started Ice Harvest. When I started Ice Harvest, I had no idea the scale of the problem. I knew there was food and I knew there were people who needed food. I didn't understand climate change. I didn't understand the environmental impact. I didn't know any of that. So then my goal was let's take the food that we know is there and feed hungry people and let's just do it till there's no more hungry people and no more food. Boy. That, yeah, that became a lesson to learn that that wasn't the case. So then it was about, okay, what are we going to do about this? I'm here to solve problems, not, not perpetuate them. My goal has always been to minimize food waste, to upskill vulnerable people, and to be as impactful as possible, not stand here and say, we've got the biggest food rescue organization and we've got more and more people to feed. Yes. No, that's terrible. I want less people to feed and less food to feed them. 
Tell me, Ronnie, how did it start? Were you pushing your trolley around the supermarket and couldn't get something? Or where does it kind of come from? No. So one of the things when we came to Australia, um, I landed up in a florist and then I landed up from the florist business going into the event industry. And I had a boutique event management company, which was putting on beautiful events, Mm -hmm. small and large. But at every one of my events, there was a common denominator, and that was food. Because food is about sharing Mm -hmm. dignity, um, respect. And for the client, the more food you laid out and gave, the more generous and successful you looked. So all of my events had lots of food, and therefore they had lots of food left over. Right. And for years, I did nothing about it, just because it was hard and it just never occurred to me. Mm. And then one time I started thinking, this is insane. There's all this beautiful food. Maybe I could take it somewhere. And I did. So for a few years, I ran rogue and just delivered food by myself when Mm -hmm. I could until I reached a point that I wanted to do something more significant. Did you realise how big a problem you were about to face in those days? I mean, taking some sandwiches left over from an event or some cakes and biscuits, but um, it is an enormous job that you guys do. How, how, how big is the problem in Australia? What, what are we talking about here? Well, it's a 20, the, the known figure is it's a 20 billion, it's costing the industry $20 billion, and that's conservative. So that's how much food we waste. The Mm -hmm. challenge is that it's a third of all food that is produced goes to waste globally. So it's the same in Australia. third of the food globally goes to waste. waste. A third. That's 1.3 billion tonnes of food goes to waste every year. I'm trying to get my head around that. 1.3 billion tonnes. It's so hard to get your head around it. Um, We collect, you know, we... Just it's it's it, I can't even tell you how many Olympic swimming pools it is, how many whales it is, how many football fields it is. But I do have an exquisite photo that I should send you at some point. Um, an independent film producer made a film two years ago. They followed me around and made a film, and it's called mm-hmm. Food Fighter. But we did a graphic that if we emptied $20 billion worth of food into the Harbour Bridge, what it would look like. I have to tell you, it's pretty shocking. It fills the harbour and you can't see the bridge. And that was just to try and give people the scale of if we took the food that we wasted and dumped it into the harbour, this would not be a beautiful tourist attraction. I'm kind of wondering, I'm grappling, I mean, if you think about the Great Depression, I can only imagine we weren't wasting that much food uh, when people are starving to death on the streets. It, where, how has this problem come about? Where, how do we go from... Yeah, I think there's no doubt that my generation, and you're somewhat younger, but possibly your generation... You're being a little bit generous there. <laughs> well, you don't have white hair yet. <laughs> Even though mine's God-given, you know, God's my hairdresser. (laughs) Um, (laughs) When when your parents and my parents just knew that every bit of food was precious. But I think in 
the rise of supermarkets and consumerism and what seemingly feels like plentiful abundance in front of our eyes. We've completely lost the value of food. Mm-hmm. We just don't appreciate what it takes to grow food. You know, you used to buy your food at a farmer's market and then maybe it was a weekly mm-hmm. or maybe it was the little corner store where everyone you knew brought their produce in there and that you might have known the lamb that now was sitting on the shelf. But yeah. today, if your son went into a supermarket, there's lamb chops sitting on a polystyrene tray covered in plastic. There's no connection between that lamb mm. and the animal that it that frolicked somewhere. Yeah. That animal is no longer frolicking. Mm. And so I think we've just lost the value of food and it just becomes our younger generation just see so much that the research shows that we throw away one in five shopping bags and it's costing us around $4,000 a year, individual households. If the money thing is so, so important, why is it that we haven't done enough about this then? Because we're not getting it through to people. People, not enough, so not enough people are hearing that message. And so that's our biggest challenge because we're the only food relief organization that's pushing the environmental message as well and mm-hmm. trying to shift and change people's behavior. So for the first 10 years, we didn't, you know, we were rescuing food and delivering until I realized, oh my God, the only thing that's going to change this is education. Okay. We have to shift our behavior. We have to get kids to re-engage and understand the value of food, understand where food comes from. But it is a very complex thing to shift and change behavior. And You know, we like the convenience. The whole notion of convenience is what drives us today, which is why we drive in cars and we pollute our planet and we jump into airplanes. And so COVID has actually been very exciting from that point of view. We've had to stop. We've had to take stock. The thing I was praying for out of COVID was that we wouldn't just revert straight back because during this time, people did start valuing food. Everybody was cooking at home. If you mm-hmm. went on any social media, all you saw was sourdough bread and beautiful cakes and all the meals and the food that people were cooking. So there was a re-engagement with food, which has been very valuable and important. Do you think that was because it wasn't available, you couldn't go out to a restaurant or people just had more time at home? I think it's a really interesting concept, you know? Yeah, I think it was both. People had more time and they were a bit nervous to go out and eat and then it became mandated that you couldn't go and eat and restaurants closed. And so suddenly people had to, you know, first there was pandemic panic buying, so they loaded up their larders, and they had to do something with that stuff. I still probably think that if I sent my vehicles around to the suburbs, there'd be so much surplus tins and frozen goods that people didn't use. Uh, and I reckon you could probably fill a few vans up with toilet paper. I don't I know where people say, put it Toilet paper, we could wrap <laughs> the country. <laughs> Ronnie, you used a really uh, interesting term a moment ago. You said we'd rescue food. 
rescue food. That's a wonderful concept. Tell me, uh, how, what does that look like? How does one rescue it's food? It's rescuing because this that, that food was destined for landfill mm-hmm. <laughs> in that it's surplus or excess to need. So right from the beginning, I just figured what we were doing was rescuing food. We weren't just picking it up and we weren't just saving it. We were literally rescuing it. So every day our vehicles go from each city point, wherever we are and we're across the country, and they'll go to supermarkets and hotels and delis and takeaways and farmers and manufacturers and producers. And unbelievably, every single day, all of those places have surplus food. Um, And it could be food that it could be milk. Have you ever been to the supermarket, Bernie, and you look at the milk and it says, if today's the 22nd of July, the milk says the 23rd. So you put your hand right to the back because you're hoping you're going to find milk that says 28th of July. Yeah, right. Yeah, so most of us have done that. But nothing wrong with the milk on the 23rd of July. I think my acid test is in my cup of tea. I don't worry about reading the things, but if it looks like yogurt coming out, then I go time for a new one. Exactly. Well, you and me and our parents and many people, but not enough because we don't really understand that if it says the 22nd doesn't mean that on the 22nd at midday you take it and throw it away. And so we collect food up to its use by date, nothing after. But supermarkets, for example, will freeze meat for us on the day before that it's going to expire because there's nothing wrong with it, and that just pauses and gives it a longer life. So we collect if you were in a boardroom and you had a boardroom meeting and ordered in three platters of sandwiches and, in fact, only Mm -hmm. two were used, we'll pick up the last platter and deliver it out. But we don't take food that's left over on someone's plate we wouldn't take half-eaten food. It's perfectly good, beautiful food fit for consumption. Yeah. Tell me, um, I'm interested in this um, journey. This uh, lady lands in Australia. She's got this little bit of a half-crazy idea about rescuing food. So in 2004 you started. Uh, who was involved? You had one van and yourself. So initially I, I did it with my work vehicle and my sons until I decided to actually do this and not knowing what that meant really actually do this all I thought I'd do was set it up keep my business going and make sure that all the food in my business and any of the other organizations that I knew that had left over you know the other event producers but then I started telling everybody that I was going to do this and I was a little bit like the Pied Piper because I didn't have to teach people that not wasting food was a good thing we know that So people said, oh, well, what can I do to help? And it didn't take long before I got some seed funding. I mean, it took a year. It seemed like it was forever, given that I wanted it from the day that I decided, you know, I'm a baby boomer. I wanted instant gratification. I wanted that up and running that minute, but it took a year. And then I got some funding. So I got two vehicles and then it kind of grew from there. People love the idea, so I got a lot of publicity, got a lot of newspapers and TV and journals. I think because, one, I was a businesswoman, two, 
it was novel because nobody else was doing it. Nobody was tapping into that beautifully you know, pile of food that was there. And it intrigued people and still does intrigue people as to why I did it. And I have to tell you, I just feel I'm the blessed, blessed, gifted human being that was tasked with this role. (laughs) Tasked by whom? By the universe. (laughs) And myself. (laughs) And your mother and father too, by the sounds. Yeah, I guess somewhere along the way. But, you know, values and, and ethics and a value-driven life. And, and you know, I had to go through some rotten stuff before I reached that point mm. <laughs> that you really want to give back, you know, that that is what you need to do. When you talk about, Ronnie, uh, the values in your life, uh, are they, A, can you give us a bit of a feel for what those values are and is it separated as your Oz Harvest business? Does it run with the same values or is it a different kind of set? How does that work? Oh, no, it's the same. I mean, Oz Harvest represents, you know, today, of course, it's a much bigger organisation and, Um, I'm surrounded by magnificent people, but I've continually been surrounded by magnificent people, which which has helped Oz Harvest be what it is today. Um, I absolutely believe that it has personality, and that's what separates it perhaps from other organisations in that it is a very energetic, vital organisation, but it's completely value-driven. I mean, we exist for one reason, and that is to make the biggest positive difference we can to the people we serve. So if you ask me about my own values, it's about service, it's about giving back, it's about generosity, it's about gratitude, and it's about really trying to live a real a real life that's based on not harming anybody and being as conscious and mindful as possible. Um, I sense that it's a bit of a David and Goliath battle. Uh, it's a massive problem. Uh, you guys just seem to keep growing and growing and growing, a bit like our food, I guess. You said something uh, the other day when we chatted um, that caught my attention. You said, when you start your day with gratitude and with knowing there are ways around most things, challenges become diminished. Are you diminishing this challenge yet? Look, I think in some ways we are, and and the way we are is by creating awareness around it. Mm-hmm. And you know, Australia has committed to halving food waste by twenty thirty because of me banging on Canberra's door and getting that commitment. Um, now there's a groundswell. You know, mm-hmm. sixteen years ago people didn't talk about food waste, and now there's an ABC series you know, the war on waste. Yeah, I think we've had something to do with that because we created the conversation in the first mm-hmm. place. So can I see an end to it yet? No. But do I believe that steps are being taken through our work and other magnificent people's work? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But it's complex and, yeah. and, and changing human behavior is very, very difficult. What is that? What is it that we fear so much about change, humans? Because uh, things change all the time, but we seem to have this inherent 
terror of, oh my God, my car might not be red tomorrow, it might be white. How are we going to deal with this change? Yeah, well, I think, one, we are petrified of change, and yet the only thing we know is change. Mm. And, in fact, during this period, the only thing that's certain is uncertainty, but Mm. that makes people struggle. Um, And being adaptable is an art and I think a skill, and not everybody has it. But I think, I think... You asked me something and I've lost my thread. You asked me about great, you, you said change. 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 Why are we so scared of it? Look, I think we get set in our ways and we feel that safe. There's a safety in habit. And it's it becomes challenging for people to step out of our comfort zone. And that's where the complexity lies because, in fact, there are certain, obviously, personalities that thrive on adventure or excitement, but the majority mm-hmm. of us really like to be set in our ways. And, in fact, our ways need to be changed. And that's, that's like pushing uphill, mm-hmm. but you can't give up because the truth is, People do change and can change. And I think if anything, if we've learned anything from COVID, it's that in the space of a short period of time, we all shifted and changed our behaviour. Yeah, and somehow got through it. And got through it. Getting through it. Yes, we want to jump back to what there was, but that was will Mm. never be. But somehow both the economic reasons and our health caused us to do this, but we haven't had... You know, we've got David Attenborough, we've got all these beautiful experts and scientists mm. telling us that if we don't shift and change, something fundamental and terrible will happen, but we don't really believe it yet. You talked about your mum and dad having a really important role in your learning and developing you as a young person. Um, I heard you talk about when you first started, it was your sons that came. Um, I bet they get the gratitude and giving something back. When I think about those kind of lessons and those values and how do we deal with change, are we teaching our kids the right stuff, whether it's at school or, I mean, are those fundamental things that we should be teaching every little human being that comes into the world? No, no. And I think you've nailed something because the values currently in our school system have removed some of those elemental humanitarian and humanities, not humanitarian, humanities from the school learning program. We focus so much on the technology and on the science side, but again, very selectively. And, you know, when I went to school, we had a a lesson called home economics, and it wasn't just for women or girls, anybody could do it. And you learned cooking and you learned skills. That's gone from schools. Mm. You know, all of those sort of soft things. And there is no, I mean, we have a program called FEAST, which is STEM and curriculum um, credited that goes into schools in years five and six. And for us, it's giving back that fundamental. It's teaching about our environment, teaching sustainability and teaching core cooking skills 
and utilizing healthy nutritional products. And every school that takes it on absolutely loves it and feels it's the gap that they didn't have time to create within the education system. Mm -hmm. So there's no doubt that we are fundamentally missing something across the education pool, and that is the element of nature, you know, looking after our planet and how to sustain ourselves and how to cook and how to look after ourselves. I guess some people might go, is that the school's job to be teaching these things or is it the parents or the auntie, uncles? Which way do you lean there? I think that we've got to, obviously, ideally you have both. But if you think about Mm -hmm. the world today, again, I mean, what COVID showed us is suddenly we had people losing their jobs and having time with their families and saying, wow, I want this back. But prior to that, you know, if you're in a high-powered job or you're in a labor-intensive job, you've got to put food on your table, have a roof over your head. Our cost of living is so expensive. It's a rat race, and we created that rat race. And so if you want things reinforced in, in many different places, so if it's not being reinforced at home, at least if you're getting it at school, if you're getting it at home and at school, then you're going to have the double whammy. But I, I, I don't think you can take the responsibility away from either, but I certainly think it helps if you're getting it at school, kids come home and share it with their parents. I'm interested in, um, in how the farmers cope with this stuff. Uh, I read somewhere uh, that something, and, and you'll know the stats if I've got this wrong, but a quarter of uh, food that's produced here on our farms in Australia uh, never leaves the farm. Is is that accurate? Yeah, it is because it's deemed not good enough for consumption by us because we're too picky and we've become those consumers that mm-hmm. want perfect apples. You know, when they created supermarkets, they built shelves and then they said, how could we fit things on the shelves? So initially I'm sure there was an apple that was this size and then an apple that was that size and somebody declared that that was not aesthetically pleasing, we need all our apples to look this size because we'll fit more on the shelf and it'll look more beautiful. And so over time, the, the apples that don't look perfect, I was, I was in Queensland on a farm and the, a, a banana plantation. Now, I don't know if you know what it takes to grow bananas, but bananas are so labor-intensive. In order for the hand to be perfect, laborers go and between every, let's say that's the hand, you know how you get, between yep. every banana, yep. they put tissue paper, layers and layers, and, and it's cosseted every Every enormous head. Mm-hmm. He showed me that when those bananas get picked and come to the sorting shed, yeah. I saw a third of those bananas or a quarter just going straight to be um, pulped because he said, I can't afford to pay transport to send them to the city and then they get rejected when they get there. So I just reject them here before they even get there. And then, yeah. 
who's calling the shots on this stuff? Because very early on in the piece, you actually had to fight legislation, didn't you? I mean, who decides uh, what banana and what apple? Uh, you know, I find it fascinating because I've never eaten an, eye, an apple with my eyes. I've only ever done it with my mouth. And if it tastes... Well, Bernie, you are probably one of the rare people because quite honestly, ultimately, we are responsible. Because if we said we want ugly fruit and veg and didn't buy the perfect, then I can tell you there wouldn't be perfect on the shelves because supermarkets and storekeepers want to sell things that we want to buy. So it's us. Originally, we got spoiled. But if we understand that it's the flavor and the taste and not the look, mm-hmm. then it's us who is responsible. Obviously, we need to have it available. Mm-hmm. So, yes, we can blame, you know. The thing is, it's not a blame game, really. That isn't going to help us now. What's going to help us now is demanding change and action and acting with our feet and with our hands and with our voices. And we can all do that. You and I both know that. <laughs> what, what can your average Aussie punter do to help with that? I mean, uh, do we go in and ask the supermarket manager for more, did you call it ugly food? Yep. I guess there are a few things we can do. First of all, we really have to start valuing food. And before we go shopping, we literally need mm-hmm. to make a list of what we need. Because when you walk into a supermarket or when you go and do your shopping, we often buy too much or we buy what we don't need or buy what's already in the fridge. So you have a lettuce in the fridge, but you forgot to check. So you didn't look. So when you come back, you've got a nice, beautiful, fresh one. The fresh one, you should uh, just look so easy. I'll eat the fresh one. And then so, you know, so we can all and that will save us money. So we can look what we've got before we go shopping. There's no doubt that if you feel committed and want to see the farmers not wasting produce and want to be part of that movement, writing letters to your supermarkets, asking for the broadest range of produce makes a difference because supermarkets cater to us. You know, don't buy strawberries or pomegranates when they're not in season because they've brought them in from somewhere and it's cost a lot of money and it means that we've forgotten the seasons. So we we do all have an ability to make a difference, every single one of us. Do you think people know about those seasons? I mean, I've talked to uh, little kids when we work in schools and we go to where does milk come from and they go all out of the milk bottle, you know. Do people really know when strawberries are grown, when apples are ripe, when... Well, they don't anymore, but they we used to. We didn't have strawberries out of season. We only ate things that were ripe at the time. And mm. so, you know, the whole issue of globalization, I mean, it's very complex and I'm not by any means saying it's a simple issue, but I think mm-hmm. if each and every one of us made a commitment to really try and buy what's in season and buy produce as direct as possible from the producer, mm-hmm. it would be helpful. Righto, we've got some top tips uh, from Ronnie now. 
you got an organisation with over 200 people, so you started off with a van and a volunteer and uh, taking your sons to work, yet somehow you've still held on to the values and the culture across a big organisation now that's gone international as well. But what makes a good leader? I think a good leader is somebody who, number one, is willing to roll up their sleeves and do whatever needs to be done. Mm-hmm. I don't differentiate myself in any way from any single one of my staff. As far as I'm concerned, even saying the word my staff, it makes me feel, oh my God, have I got staff? No, I've got a bunch of extraordinary people around me who for whatever reason look to me to be the vision and to give them the positivity around what it is we do. And that's a huge responsibility and I will never, ever take that for granted. You know, I I feel so privileged and so blessed that people believe in me and therefore it's incumbent on me to be the best I can be. And so I think what it takes to be a leader is to take responsibility for every part of what happens. You know, how many times, even our prime minister, we've heard him say, but it wasn't me, I wasn't there, I didn't do I mean, come on, you know. Own it. Own it. Own it. Uh, and it's a tricky business, isn't it? One of the things we do at Backtrack with the young people is uh, get them to own their own shit first up. But when we see it from our political leaders or those that stand up that are leaders that don't own, Donald Trump, for example, I've never, ever once heard him go, oh, yeah, actually, we got that a bit wrong, you know? It's always somebody else's fault. I wouldn't even classic. I don't even mention his name and I wouldn't call him the word leader is just, it's by default. Yeah. But it is there and it's true. So you're right, it's it's owning, it's it's taking that responsibility and being being one of the team, you know. Yeah. Uh, look, talking to you, uh, I seriously get why people follow you around and go, yep, that's a good idea, let's get in behind. Tell me what's your vision for the future? Where are you going to take this? So, you know, it's so funny because... Really, I intended to start House Harvest so that I could finish it, you know, solve the problem. But now I'm inspired to make sure that one, other people can learn, can learn to be leaders, can learn from what it is we do. Mm-hmm. And, and we, our, our remit has just got much bigger. You know, yeah. yes, we've got to minimize food waste. Yes, we've got to upskill people. But climate change is a big thing. So let's fight that too. Let's be as entrepreneurial and as creative as we can so that every interaction with us is absolutely value-driven and service-driven mm-hmm. and makes a difference. You know, I just want to make as much difference as I can to as many people as possible. I'll tell you what, if ever there's a conflict, I bags being on your team. <laughs> I love your positivity and your humbleness. Tell me what keeps you up at night. Are there things that you just go? <sighs> no, I never just go, uh-huh. I, I just think, how do I find a solution? You know, funding is a big issue. Philanthropy yep. and making sure that people invest in allowing us to keep doing what we do is probably the biggest challenge. But people people believe, people give money to people they believe in and to causes that make a difference. And so I guess for me, it's all about our impact. All the time I know that we're making a big mm-hmm. impact 
and a positive impact and literally shifting and changing lives, then I know that we'll be okay. Uh, Ronnie Khan, you're an extraordinary lady, uh, as is your organisation, you know, and so many people that walk alongside you uh, making it possible. It just uh, fills my heart with joy to hear somebody that just keeps coming up with what's the damn solution and let's not sit around discussing the problem, let's go and find the solution. That's what I'll remember of Ronnie. Um, But I'm wondering when you're sitting on your rocking chair and the time pieces ticking you know there's not much longer what do you hope people will remember most about you you're going to make me cry because i just want them to know that i did my best and that i made a difference you know to one person if you make a difference to one person that person could change the world and so every one person is a potential beautiful new leader new humanitarian philanthropist that's all. That's all I ever want. And to have beautiful grandchildren that also give back to the world. Uh, a wise, wonderful woman, an everyday hero. Uh, look, I take my hat off to you and uh, I'm going off to write a letter to the supermarket boss. <laughs> More ugly food. Thank you so much. Thank you for this opportunity and... I really appreciate just having a beautiful chat with you. What you do is magnificent. And thank goodness, again, you've been recognized for that, but you'd be doing it anyway. I know that. I know that from what from myself. Can't wait to cross tracks when I can get into your busy diary. Looking forward to it. Thanks so much, Bernie. Thanks for Good that. on you. Lovely to catch up. You too. Radio. that's the long and short of it for this episode of Everyday Heroes. We're always on the lookout for more everyday heroes. If you've got a mate, or maybe you consider yourself a bit of a hero, we'd love to hear from you. Send your story our way by emailing inquiries at backtrack.org.au. We'd also love your support. If you rate us, rate us five stars. Then get behind the podcast by subscribing or donating at backtrack.org.au forward slash donate. Boots on the ground